Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good evening and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr and I'm your host for this evening's event. Thank you for joining me in conversation with the brilliant Andrew Hagen for the world premiere of his astonishing new novel, Mayflies. Our heyday at the Hacienda is part of the Made in Scotland series and is supported by the British Council. This year's entire festival programme is entirely free of charge and this is only possible thanks to the generosity of supporters and donors, that's you. If you enjoy this evening, and I trust that you will, I hope you'll consider making a donation so the Book Festival team can continue their great work. Your support really does make all the difference. While you're all still getting settled, a few words on how this evening is going to work. In a moment, Andrew will read for us and then we'll open our hearts to one another and at 6.15 we'll take as many of your questions as we can. Three of Andrew's novels have been nominated for the Booker and Mayflies will doubtless be the fourth. As a writer, he ranges widely, combining memoir and investigative journalism to devastating effect in The Missing, seeing the world from the point of view of Marla Monroe's Maltese terrier, Math, before taking us to Blackpool and Afghanistan and the Illuminations. As a journalist, he is formidable and fearless, writing that piece about Jimmy Savile and the paedophile culture of light entertainment, that piece about WikiLeaks and ghosting Julian Assange, and that entire issue of the LRB about Grenfell, for which he was pilloried and praised. Andrew's gifts for words is perhaps only exceeded by his talent for friendship. He brings both these skills together to devastating, joyful effect in Mayflies. It's the story of lifelong pals Tully and Noodles who grew up in Irvine. Together, as Burns and O'Hagan did before them, they seek adventure beyond the Ayrshire hedges, a world bigger and brighter and freer and fairer than that occupied by their fathers. Tully's green eyes dance with love and mischief, and Noodles always has his nose in a novel, the more pretentious, the better. They hate Thatcher and joylessness. They love the Smiths and the Godfather. The first half takes place in the summer of youth and sees them and their pals head to a festival in Manchester. The second half sees Tully struck down in his hard-won prime and noodles called upon to honour their lifelong friendship in the hardest way imaginable. It is as fleeting as youth and as profound as the joy you only find on the dance floor at the Hacienda with your very best pal in the whole wide world. Please welcome Andrew O'Hagan. Hi, Damien. Hiya, it's so good to see you. It's a fantastic treat to talk to you. Oh, a pleasure. I had only realised earlier today that this is actually, this is your world premiere. It is, it's my world premiere, the first event, first chance to talk to anybody about the novel and read from it, so I'm quite excited. Before we talk about it, will you give us some readings, please? Sure. Um, I'm not going to explain too much. You've done such a good job of that in setting it up that I think I can go straight into uh, giving a bit of the flavour of the book uh, to our viewers. Um, this is quite near the beginning of the novel and it features a wonderful place in the world that uh, many of you, I hope, will recognise. That's Paisley. Hogg stayed in the flat by himself when we went to the pub. The whole of Paisley smelt of vinegar and the evening was almost warm. But weather is one thing and regulars are another. And you could say it was hostile to groups of lads in the cotton arms. In fact, if looks were bullets, 
It was the St. Valentine's Day massacre. The four of us sauntering in with similar haircuts and jeans and all confident-like. The barman lashed a dish towel over his shoulder and poured four pints of tenants, his eyes on us. Then we carried them over to a table. Photographs of old mills and weavers' rallies were hung around the walls and above the bar ran the legend, pain inflicted, suffering endured, injustice done. At the other tables, men scowled and licked their chops in preparation. The women wore so much jewellery they jangled every time they lifted their drinks, their glances quite pitying and the gold so brassy it was almost red. Bad vibes can be an excellent spur. At least, that was my thinking, my hope, as some gigantic guy blocked me in my way to the bogs. A neon sign for Schlitz played havoc with his angry eyes and his nightmare shut. This is your pub, he said. Um, by whose decree, I said. This is a public bar. He looked at me for what felt like 150 years. Then he sniggered, snorted, huffed and swayed before wetting his middle finger and sticking it in my ear. Aye, but we private security, he said, wiggling his finger. Look, mate, I said, my heart thumping. We're just out for a drink, not looking for any trouble at all. But we are he said. We love trouble. Um, uh, I totally sympathise. Nervous laughter. Trouble has its own um, charm. Undoubtedly, I mean, personally, I can't understand why anybody wouldn't love trouble. I mean, I just, it's such an underrated, stop talking, ya dick. Of course, <laughs> shut it. He inspected me inflict my collar like a lion toying with a dead gazelle. He inclined his head and I thought, this is it. He's going to nut me. At any second, his large head would be crashing into mine and I'd be out forever. Smithereens. What are you anyway? He said, some kind of university study group. No, just shut up. But while he stared, his rictus became a smile. I'll let you off, he said eventually and tapped my shoulder as he left. Such is the mercy of kings, gods, psychopaths and lions. So savage in fury, so benign in forgiveness. I'll come to the next Thank week in a little bit. Shall we do a bit of chatting? Yeah, 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 yeah. That scene absolutely filled me with dread because I feel like we've all been in that pub. We've all we've all <laughs> faced that man. We've not done it with quite such elan or style. Um, it's it's a great scene and it really captures the what the first part of the novel is all about to me, which is the bra the braveness, the foolhardiness um, of youth and the great joy that there is in there. And it's a book that's full of those other coming of age novels. Um, I was thinking lots about Brideshead when I was reading it and, uh, and about Gatsby too. And I wonder when you set out to write a kind of a Bildung's romance like this, what, what, how conscious are you of that writing into that tradition and of those other stories? 
You know, Damien, I think one of the things that's still a huge um, dividing issue in British life and culture is class. You know, the great mm. cliche about the working class is that they're all underread and don't use the libraries and, you know, don't go to university and don't study and have no, uh, none of the tools, if you like, of middle class existence and survival. That's just untrue in my experience. This book shows a group of lads who were all incredibly political, politically engaged as well as political. Um, they were readers, they were thinkers, they had a whole slew of movies that they loved, especially kitchen sink drama. I mean, we used to be able to quote whole reams of Saturday night and Sunday morning or A Taste of Honey at each other. You know, it would be part of the patter. And, you know, these were very kind of demotically energetic working class boys. A lot of them worked in factories or were postmen. Um, some of them, you know, were among the cleverest people that I've ever met. I mean, I later went into literary life and moved to London and, you know, met some formidably clever people, I admit. But there was something about the natural wisdom and sort of risky intelligence of those boys, boys in a gang, for whom popular culture wasn't a kind of little holiday they took now and again. It was where they lived. You know, they could blend a discussion about the Great Gatsby or Evelyn Waugh, as you mentioned, with, you know, The Godfather or Stand By Me or the new album by The Fall and, you know, get incredibly acerbic with each other about the values associated with each. So for me, it's a, it was a task, you know, to try and write a novel of working class life where the, where the voices were as clever and as original and as relentlessly themselves as they were in life. And it is purely autobiographical in that sense. Uh, the, the, the way that they do talk to one another of, of tumbling in and out of one another's sentences, it's like puppies. It's just over and through. And it's very densely intertextual in that way where they're, they're moving from films to, to books to records the, the whole time and one another's preferences. Um, it's, it's a very fast read in that sense and will make for very good uh, telly uh, for that exact reason. But I'm interested just then, you said you used the term autobiographical and you were saying they, they, they. And it feels much more to me like we, 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 mm. us. Um, so, so how autobiographical is it? Oh, I mean, probably, or almost certainly the most autobiographical thing, not only that I have written, but perhaps that I'll ever write. I mean, it came straight from uh, the pain and drama of a lived experience. You know, um, when you've been a writer for a few decades, as I have, a published writer for, you know, 30 years now, you know, you pick up a lot of technique through the years and you pick up new subjects through the years as well. I've written about a lot of things around the world, you know, you know child jihadis, and you know, I was there at Hurricane Katrina and, uh, you know, while that rescue was going on and that sort of terrible racism was exhibiting itself uh, in New Orleans back then and wrote lengthy pieces of reportage or indeed books uh, about these subjects but I always felt that lying in wait for me was something very very personal and it was to do with uh, my teenage years and then when a very close personal friend of uh, the group that I grew up in uh, Keith Martin uh, got esophageal cancer young at 50, uh, we began, all of us, to start to look at our past in a new way. And I realized when he asked me, and he asked me as straight as I'm speaking to you now, please write about us. 
And I realized that I was already committed to that in my head, that trying to capture once and for all a very underdescribed territory. I mean, Scottish literature is a brilliant, endlessly flowering plant, an amazing culture compared to what it was when we were young, but it was very hard to find an account of a young Catholic growing up in the west coast of Scotland in a novel. I mean, I used to read Irish novel after Irish novel to get, you know, the sacraments and get that experience of the love of Celtic football club or whatever. But now, in these recent years, and certainly in the last couple of decades, there's been this renaissance of expression. This underdescribed country and underdescribed territory has suddenly come into focus. And as part of that, I felt there was still, there were still parts of life that could be, could be brought in, could be dramatized. And the friendship between a group of young working class men hadn't been in the novel that I wanted to read. So um, Keith gave me that subject and, you know, the autobiographical nature of it was always naked to me. I mean, I sometimes see authors trying to conceal the autobiographical nature of their work. I remember Toni Morrison once saying, you know, embrace that, sing it. It's your story to tell. And I felt in this case that there was a whole generation of us, not just men, but women as well, whose fathers might have done their national service. That's how they met uh, friends. And our children who meet a lot of their friends on the internet, but there was this middle generation, Thatcher's children, if you like, um, in Britain, who didn't have mobile phones, had to meet at bus stops or make arrangements on the house phone. Remember that, the house phone? house phone. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to try and somehow get that whole culture of chip pan fires and you know, going to record shops and meeting people there that you didn't expect to meet, but that you wanted to meet, who might be your best pals. You know, all those arrangements and habits, because I think a novel is a little moral mach machine full of our lived experience, our habits, and our kind of Austin-esque or Jane Austen-esque rituals. Of course, they're very different, those rituals, uh, in uh, suburban west coast of Scotland than from Jane Austen's Bath. But to me, just as important and just as worth recording. I very much enjoy uh, the scene where Tully, uh, who, has a has a home life uh, has noodles over for dinner um and it's a scene that i i lived many times in my own childhood you know going from a from a home that's chaotic to a home that's relatively calm and, and relatively safe where he goes for dinner with his best pal and he kind of is adopted isn't he mm. um by their by by tully's family tell us about that but there's also the brilliant scene where they're serving up peas i think and and they're looking up and there's a picture of a child crying on the wall and they think this is the most Scottish thing imaginable, eating your dinner every night under a picture of I mean, a So many child. of the so-called meals of my childhood, sorry mum, were presided over by a, a child in distress. I mean, we were pretty much in distress as well as we tried to wrestle with the Findus crispy pancakes and the Arctic, Arctic roll. But, uh, you know, the fight um, was overseen by this popular work of art that was in so many of the houses. In fact, I could honestly say that in the housing estate that I grew up in, you know, every second house at one point had one of those, either a blue-faced lady, remember the, uh, the blue-faced oh, yes. lady, or a flamenco dancer, or one of those sort of cheap, popular art. I love them now, actually. I quite happily fill a room. I don't know if anybody living anywhere near me could put up with it. But the most astonishing of all was the crying boy. This really upsetting picture of a child, often dressed as a peasant, a kind of Dickensian sentimental figure with tears rolling down his face. I think there was a version where it was a, a girl as well, but the one that I uh, certainly stared at far too often for too many hours of my childhood was a crying boy. And sometimes during these, um, you know, 
these suppers, these trial by fire suppers where you, know, you couldn't tell what was on the plate. It was a kind of wonderful <laughs> quiz. What are we actually eating? And nobody, including the person who'd prepared it, knew. Um, you would look up at this crying boy and think, he feels my pain. <laughs> what T.S. Eliot would have called an objective correlative in the room, that a symbol of all we felt was there uh, looking at us. Um, there was a lot of comedy in that world. You know, I have to say, writing the book, comedy came naturally, although ultimately there is a tragic centre to this book um, mm. about loyalty and the future and uh, responsibility among friends, uh, what you owe each other. If you shaped each other and gave birth to each other's character when you were young, what do you owe each other as the years pass? And how does that sense of commitment change? For me, they were deep songs, if you like, at the center of the book. And I knew that readers would move at their own pace towards them. But along the way, I always knew from the very first draft that there would be comedy, because my friendship with those boys that so informs the book was just a perpetual laughter. And that laughter still exists when I see them today. I laughed out loud when I was reading it. And the, the line about it, way back in the gothic mists of time, before Lulu, I just had me in stitches. <laughs> and then there's a great scene where, oh, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil it, but um, it's a classic Glasgow line that I had to translate for my husband. He was like, what does that mean when you say that about a duck? And I'm like, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. It's very good. But when he's at that dinner in that house, um, the father is there, the mother is, mother is there, um, Noodles, his own parents are absent. He's kind of divorced from his parents in a way, isn't he? He's, he's on his own. How did that come about? Well, that was one of the uh, technical things in the book. What I wanted to do with uh, that central narrator, Jimmy, who uh, comes to feel so close to, to Tully and to the rest of the boys, but especially to Tully as those years go on, I wanted to give him uh, a very precise hinterland. Sometimes uh, as a writer, your job is technically to make sure that you don't over-furnish your story. Um, that was actually one of the departures from life. You know, I didn't divorce my parents. My, my parents had their own divorce to contend with, but I didn't. Uh, and I had three brothers. I have three brothers in life. But uh, for, for Jimmy, I wanted him to have a, a much more solo journey. And for his dependency, if you like, on his friend Tully in that house that you described where he's welcomed and he's found funny and he's liked and he's encouraged to come and stay over and have his supper when his own family's so chaotic. That, some of that was borrowed from life, but the sense of his parents being absolutely away from him and eventually at a distance it was something that was just a, real, a, a sort of technical decision. I wanted, to, I wanted Jimmy to be on his own and to need the friendship of Tully um, you know, in the way that other people might need their own family. Jimmy Noodles is kind of on his own. Tully's dad is there. And the, the relationship, I mean, the very first paragraph of this, of this novel is pitting fathers against sons. It, it describes fathers watching their sons playing football with an injured look on their faces. And, and very, fathers and sons are set against one another. The sons want to escape the shadows of their, of their fathers. And tell us a bit about, about Tully's relationship with his with his own dad um, and, and talk more about the relationships between fathers and sons in the novel. You know, one of my favourite books growing up, or favourite writers, was Turgenev, in that very Russian sense that each generation has a job in its hands to handle the disappointments and the difficulties of the previous one. And I've found that to be true in life, endlessly true. 
and now that I'm a father myself, I, I mean, I see that it's probably true for the generation coming up too. It's an endless, uh, even pre-Freudian um, task, trying to deal with, you know, what if your father's disappointments, in a way, were enacted on his family? And I have to tell you quite um, explicitly that a lot of the boys I knew, a lot of the friends I had, the ones that I felt closest to, they all had fathers who were in a state of disorder. You know, they, they were either drinkers or they suffered badly during the Thatcher years from disappointment and worklessness. Again, all of that, you know, is, is, is manna for an intimate novel that tries to capture the essence of a nation's life. That was an important period in our formation as a country. That terrible uh, devastation that occurred in many of the heavy industries here. And it had a direct impact on many families, many of our fathers, were out of work, were drinking too much, and were at war at some level with their own families. You know, we expect to find that in Russian literature. We expect to see that in Tolstoy or Turgenev. We don't expect necessarily to see it in, you know, funny novels set in the west coast of Scotland, you know, depending on the period from the 1980s to now. But it felt utterly familiar and natural to me. We had that in common. And all the boys in the novel have some sort of... Um, difficulty to iron out or some overwhelming refusal to face on the part of their father and sometimes their mothers too. And many of the people that I've known and loved, part of their story growing up was how to make their peace with that, how to find something lovable and authentic and connected between them and their fathers. Um, so I wanted that, that truth, that common bond that the boys have, that experience to work its way into the novel. Did you find that with your own father? Oh, very much. I mean, my father was largely absent for a lot of our lives. And when he was present, it was a complicated presence because, um, you know, he wasn't entirely comfortable in a family. And, you know, again, that's, that's, that's not just a plot point. That's something that many of us lived through. And, mm. you know, and it's, it's not a case of, sort of you know, only seeing the negative in that or what was disturbing about it. I mean, I'm not about to board the Boohoo Express on that. I mean, you live with what you live with. And I think that novelists have a responsibility to try and show motivation and actually let the reader do the arithmetic over the course of a novel. That by the end, you feel for those, those men because you've been in your head to places that maybe they, they don't even see um, are there in their lives. You, you as the reader are very often doing much more work than the, the characters are able to do because you know more than them. And that, mm. through the drafts, that's what I wanted to create with this novel, was one of those novels that you hold close to yourself and you feel that you are part of its creation. You understand these, these men. You know, you've been through their lives with them. And, and in that sense, I wanted, to, for the first time probably, uh, to present the story of a complete life. Uh, Tully's life is if you like, fully reflected. It's a short life, but it's fully reflected in this book. But certainly, I drew on every aspect of my own life, including my life with my late father. Why, given that, did you make the choice to write a novel rather than a memoir, given that you know, Keith gave you the permission, in fact, gave you the instruction, the benediction mm. even, uh, to go and, and write of you? Um, why did you come to that choice? 
I think I would have probably been arrested, and so would everybody that I know, if I'd actually put down the actual lines spoken by my friends in the 1980s. <laughs> no, seriously, I think that some material just comes to you as, you know, as fiction. As you know, Damien, you know, there's a difference between facts and the truth. You know, we're living through a period uh, in, in history at the moment where there's great political confusion about the difference between the two. I mean, people keep talking about, you know, false history and false memory, and um, the ghastly American president talks about fake news, when, of course, he's the chief uh, propeller of fake news in our time. We're living with this, that supposedly highly responsible, uh, highly elected individuals are, are misinforming the public as to facts and truths all the time. So I would argue that novelists have an extra burden at the moment to help readers uh, define and refine in their minds and in their lives what truth is. And truth isn't just a, a list of facts. I could present to you a whole list of facts pertaining to you know, what's in front of me right now. They wouldn't deliver the truth of this situation because the truth is an imagined thing. We need to put the best of our uh, tolerance, beauty, compassion, and commonality into fashioning the truth. That's why history and politics is such a complicated and important thing in the lives of writers and readers, because we're always, always responsible, each of us as moral beings, responsible for creating the truth, for recognizing it, for sharing it, and for defending it where we can. Now, when it comes to something as seemingly straightforward as a piece of writing, you know, from life, as I've already said, it's autobiographical, but even so, it can't just be a list of facts. Because what, fa what are facts for one person is not necessarily, a, what's a fact for one person is not necessarily a fact for somebody looking from a different perspective. So it seemed to me when the question of perspective came in, that this wasn't um, a piece of autobiography, it was a piece of autobiographical fiction, where I would feel free to put the pieces together in a way that would build uh, the narrative and allow the reader to come on a journey that was different from the very precise journey of Keith Martin and Andrew Hagen and all the other boys' lives. I didn't want to compromise the story in a way by making it adhere to facts, which, many of which weren't relevant to the story. The ultimate journey for Tully um, is something that's fashioned by the necessities of the story rather than my necessity of sticking to the truth, if you know what I mean. And that's very common for playwrights, poets, novelists and filmmakers all over the world all the time. We understand that. I would expect that Mayflies in the end tells a much deeper truth about friendship and loyalty and Scottishness and time and masculinity than it would have done if I'd just given this endless shopping list of facts. I had to shape something, I had to invent something and it was a rhythm and a pattern and ultimately um, a picture which I think people will empathize with. Well, I, I mean, I certainly did. Uh, I certainly did reading it, um, empathise with it. I, as I told you when I finished reading it, I, you know, I just sat there crying. I just sat there crying and crying for the love of it, for the love, for the love between these two uh, friends. But I do think, Andrew, there's something else going on here for you as a writer because the the, the experience you describe, you know, the, the differences between facts and, and truth. I think of facts as things that we know maybe as truth. As something that we that we feel in fact obviously have have a relationship with that but you know how inventive you can be 
um, when you write a memoir as a, as, a, as a piece of writing, as a piece of form, it's something that you've written about um, before and towards. I can't feel that that's the only reason you made a decision. I think you could have been incredibly inventive with memoir as a genre. It feels like you've chosen to make this um, a novel that's not that's that's maybe more about you as a person than you as a writer I don't know um, I, I understand I don't think it's just about limitations of the form no it's not about the limitations of the form if anything it's about the opportunities of the form you know I, mm. as you know I very much believe in non-fiction as much mm. I mean I don't have this sense of uh, the hierarchy of forms you know some writers might and they feel that hardback non-fiction is at the top of the list and everything else is a sort of lesser form I really don't believe that you know mm. I sometimes work on pieces of reportage which take as much out of you um, day by day sentence by sentence syllable by syllable as any fiction does so it's not a mm. question of hierarchy for me it was just a question of what was right for the material and mm -hmm. I think that a memoir uh, based on that friendship would have been, uh, if you like, uh, too partial. It would have, it, mm -hmm. it, if, you, if you like, not too personal. I, would have, I could easily have, as you say, Keith would have been comfortable with it. But his family, his wife, you know, his wife's family, his other friends, you know, I would have had to really have written a kind of group memoir had mm -hmm. it been, uh, you know, because I was a friend of his, but he had other and in some cases, more important friends and long-lasting friends and, you know, members of his family who had a claim on reality in his case, which uh, I didn't have to take responsibility for as a novelist. But I think as a memoir writer, you do have to take responsibility for, mm. if you like, veracity. Um, the truth that you're creating has to, as it were, ask permission, not just of the central subject, but of all the subjects. And mm. I, I, I didn't feel in the end that that was the book he actually was talking to me about and that I wanted to write. He kept mentioning The Great Gatsby to me. Now that's of course a ludicrous thing and I don't, I rush to say, I do not compare uh, my effort, um, this book Mayflies, which I'm very proud of, but I don't compare it to The Great Gatsby, but he often mentioned that novel, he loved it. And that is also a book, as everybody knows, about a relationship between, centrally between these two men, Nick Carraway, the narrator, and uh, Jay Gatsby, the central, uh, eponymous figure in the novel. Um, it's a novel about many things, about friendship, but also about love and about illusion and about America and about freedom. And he loved and adored that book. He taught it, I think, too, uh, in his life as a teacher. And I think that when we talked about that novel, it was about the freedom to take what was true and just sing it in a whole new way. And the crucial words in that sentence for me, Damien, are in a whole new way. Keith Martin's life was an absolutely observable thing, which any of us could talk about who knew him. But my story of Tully Dawson could only be mine. And I took possession of it and took the freedoms that, that, we, uh, that we loved. It is utterly transcendent. And you said then about singing, and it really, it really, there are parts of the book that I read out loud just for the, for the pure joy of it. And I know you wouldn't compare it to Gatsby because you're not a tool, um, <laughs> but I can compare it to Gatsby because I, I, I thought about it loads. I thought about it loads, especially when I was thinking about Tully's eyes and the green. I kept thinking about that green flash in Gatsby mm. um, at the end. And I think that it does take its place in that tradition of novels, of friendships between men. And there is also something powerful about it in that you're writing about friendships between men um, and you're kind of dealing with some of the taboos around masculinity and silence that, um, that were certainly 
factors that these characters had to contend with when they were growing up and that you had to contend with too. I mean, I think it's always worth remembering that, you know, there are no parts, I mean, there are no parts of life which are, as it were, um, less interesting uh, in terms of their humanity. There was generations of imperialist writers who thought that the experience of being English in the terrible words of Cecil Rhodes, that if you were born English, then you'd won first prize in the lottery of humanity, and that all other lives were somehow a form of loserhood. Well, thank God, in the last few decades, we're now learning how to rubbish that and dump it in the dustbin of history, that way of thinking. But let's not, in our effort to rubbish that, replace it with another set of prejudices, where we're also, look, again, looking at people's lives being less than others. For example, white straight men's lives, are they now to be found something for the dustbin of history because they're neither fashionable nor um, at the top list of our priorities at the moment? No, because that's not how civilised, tolerant, liberal people think. We're trying to move towards an equality, not replace a disequilibrium with another disequilibrium. So let's open our minds and our hearts to that and perhaps mm. look at how, if you feel moved to write a book about a group of white boys who come from the West Coast of Scotland, you're not going to stick in some uh, people of colour just to keep the critics happy or to meet some fashionable standard. That would be grotesque and it would be an insult both mainly to the people of colour but also to those other lived lives which work their way into fiction in their own way and it's in their own way. I'm absolutely want to fill all sails and all ships with new freedoms. But we're living through fanatical times where sometimes people want to earn their freedom for their group at the expense of another group. And that is something I think we should all be alert to at the moment. Do you feel as a writer who belongs to the constituency that you described of straight white men, um, that you, do you feel as free as you did at the start of your career to write about things that concern you as a novelist as you do now? I think I feel every bit as free, if not more so, because there's been incredible struggles going on in the last three or four decades. Um, and they've, they've raised all boats. And I mean, it's the kind of tide that raises all boats if looked at properly. Now, mm. as I've just indicated, in the mind of some critics and some uh, speakers, uh, they have the view that only some boats should raise with that tide. That's not how I think about humanity, I'm afraid. I mean, it's me you're talking to, there's others who'll give another mm. view. But mm. um, I feel that the, the freedoms that have come about have increased freedoms for all of us. At the centre of this novel, as you'll know, uh, there's a character, Steady McCalla, again, autobiographically, from our past, uh, a man from Jamaica who was always treated um, as a second-class citizen in the working-class town that I grew up in. That's a story that hasn't been told until I'm telling it now, that Steady McCalla and other people of colour in that town were treated badly and in a racist fashion by working-class people. Now, that's one of those taboos. Nobody wants to say it, that when we're talking about racism, what we're often talking about is a lack of education or a, a conspiracy um, of damagingness in a culture, and working class culture was not free of that. And I put that into the novel very deliberately. That's one of the magic things about Tully, is that he stands against it. He was instinctively political and anti-racist, and he said he wouldn't have it. He goes up to those guys in the pub and says, you know, Tully McCallum comes in here every night, and you never look at him, you never speak to him. 
and uh, the trade union, their trade union, went against, as they did in life, by the way, when Glasgow Corporation buses tried to hire a certain number of people from the Caribbean, there was a, a bit of a local uprising on that subject among white working class corporation mm. workers. So these are the difficult truths that we try and tell in our novels. So it's a long answer to your question, Damien, but I think it's crucial, you know, I think it's really important that if we're going to discuss contemporary fiction and contemporary ideas, then let's open the ideas up. Uh, we're not in the business of constantly just agreeing with each other. That's not a healthy culture. In France, they spend their whole times on talk shows shouting at each other. That's called having a lively literary culture. And we can cope with a bit of that too. Yeah, I think there's lots of space for, for, for disagreement without cancellation, so long as we're meeting on a well, civilised, equal footing. Yeah, the, you mentioned the word, and you're right to, that we're living through a period at the moment where, uh, you know, if people don't do as they're expected to do, which is to automatically agree in a support with the opposition's position, then they're somehow up for being cancelled, for being rejected. And that, mm. to, my, to my mind, is not how liberal tolerance works. A debate is called a debate for a reason. Each can equally and with equal valour and respect give their view. Now, I hate racists. I don't particularly want them in my life. I don't particularly want to debate with them either. But if I have to debate with them, I will listen to what they have to say and try and exhibit the respect that I would expect from them simply because that is intellectually the standard that we try and work to, isn't it? Cancelling them doesn't help any of us. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. I agree with you about that. And I, 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 but I do, I am also very conscious that the ability to listen from a place of safety comes from the privilege that you and I enjoy mm -hmm. um, in, in, the world that, in the world that we live in. We come from a place of now of relative privilege. Um, and I think it's interesting balancing that, particularly in terms of class. Like I was thinking about you earlier and I was thinking, well, you know, Andrew's got a lovely house in Primrose Hill and he's, he's always so dapper and dashing. Would I describe him still as a working class novelist? And, and the answer is yes. You know, um, this, this story speaks to me of that kind of truth. And I wonder how you negotiate that, um, how you negotiate that now in terms of your, in terms of your identity when you go out into the world as, as a writer in terms of class. It feels very natural to me, to be quite honest. Yeah. I grew up in a world where, you know, Men came in on a Friday night, uh, and women, um, and what they did was they washed the sink, they used as much soap as they could afford, they got a metal comb and dragged it through their hair, they splashed Old Spice about their face, that's the men, some of the women too, anyway, <laughs> um, and they put a suit on, and they put a dark tie on, and they went to the pub. Now, anybody who tries to, as it were, own, you know, the business of caring about wearing a suit or caring about living in a nice house. Or My mother was obsessed with living in a nice house. She did live in a nice yeah. house. It was a council house. Yeah, you know, mine too. Again, trying to, trying to look at this question of rightful ownership means don't cover the working class in this country with cliches. That they're, they're supposed to live in a slum. They're supposed to dress in a shell suit. I won't have it. That wasn't the culture I grew up in. You know, the men that I admired, and they were all brill creamed up, and they were all incredibly, it was part of their culture. You know, mm. that's why we love the Smiths so much, because they glamorized, you know, working class men. And so did those kitchen sink dramas, the Albert Finneys. You know, nearly every scene in that film where he comes in, I think you actually see him at the sink at some point, getting in, and he goes out and he's in the suit. Now, he might get bladdered in the pub and insult mm. everybody and be, be self-loathing and fall, you know, be thrown down the stairs. He's wearing quite a nice suit. <laughs> And he, yeah. <laughs> he has a culture 
that we don't want to deny. You know, it's not rich people who know how to dress in this country. Um, I grew up getting all the, all the exemplars were uh, guys in the next street who loved David Bowie or who really, really cared about the clash. Um, I'm going to go in a wee minute to questions uh, from the audience, just so you know, if you're out there and you're watching and you want to ask a question, you've got a couple of minutes to go ahead and do that. Um, this isn't the novel you were writing when you appeared at my salon last. You were working on uh, an epic of London. I think you were called, were you calling it Caledonian Road? Yeah, it's still called Caledonian Road. It's still called Caledonian still Road. An epic. Still, it's still, still an epic. <laughs> getting more epic by the day. It's quite epic. Um, tell us uh, a, wee, a wee bit about that. And because obviously it was the real life loss of your friend that interrupted the I mean, I think as a writer, you've always got to be ready, you know, to put, if you were a taxi, you stick your light on as you're rolling mm -hmm. down the road. You sometimes just have to do that, be ready um, for an interruption. You know, I've been working for years on a huge, grotesque epic of London society that goes from, um, you know, uh, the poorest parts of society to the richest. I've been at more, um, you know, more trips to Victoria coach station to speak with Polish immigrants coming off buses from Poland. And I've been at the borders of many of those countries. I've been in factories. I'm about to start working in a factory with immigrants uh, as research for this book. And on the other hand, I've also been- uh, Can I just stop you a sec? Do they know, do they know what you're doing and which, what's the factory tells about, about that? Yeah, I told them that I felt I had to because, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm unfortunately no longer at the age where I can just turn up and pretend that I've just sort of left school and need a job. YTS. I used to do things like that when I was first writing uh, reportage, you know, I went on the streets as a beggar for months and wrote a 16,000 word piece for the London Review of Books, but I was only in my early 20s then and you could get away with sitting in the streets sort of with a sign, I don't know that I get away with it now. So for those practical reasons, I had to tell the factory and they, you know, they're nervous, I think, but also willing to um, let me in to see, I mean, it'll be a fictional factory in the book, but um, mm you know, just watching the routines, listening to the language, seeing the actual work being done. Too few British mm -hmm. novels have work in them. Mm -hmm. People sort of don't go to their workplace as often as I would like as a, as a reader and a fan of fiction I'm talking here. Um, so that's been happening. And at the same time, going to the, sort of the Windsor Polo Club where the Queen was there and going to the Perth Hunt Ball and going to these uh, incredible sort of, uh, you know, new Bond Street openings and going to fashion shows. And well, they're off at the moment because of COVID, but I've spent years going to Milan, to Paris and to New York Fashion Week and being backstage with the big designers and the models and going to the after parties because all of it is coming into this huge Dickensian novel that I've been writing forever, which as I say, sort of, shows and episodes the whole of a society. I've always wanted to write a book which somehow showed how money, ambition, truth and fairness work across a whole society where you get prisons and schools and hospitals and factories in the book. So that's been a hell will it be, huge will, they be, will, these be, will these be distinct short stories that are connected and not because it could just go it could just go on, right? You need to have limits. What right. are the limits and points of connection? As you know yourself, Damien, it's always about control. Our job yeah. isn't to just throw paint at the wall and watch it drip, much as Jackson Pollock um, is you know, lovely to look at and lovely to think about. Um, actually, form and technique and control is what we're really in the business of doing. Uh, and you know, I've been doing all of this research and building up huge 
experience for the novel over these years, the Caledonian Road is a thing of chapters and sort of Dickensian control. I've learned a lot from those great Victorian uh, masters, especially George Eliot, especially uh, Trollope and Dickens, you know, looking um, to see just exactly how you pace and build a story which is a large cast of characters coming from different milieu, different parts mm. of the world economically, uh, mm. in terms of sex, sexuality and gender, in terms of uh, their experience um, of class. I want to get all of this very patiently in, and in a controlled way presented to the reader but as a gripping narrative, I mean, I've never written a book where even I, as the author, sometimes, you know, I feel my fingers going slightly faster because I want to know exactly what's going to happen for these, uh, these people in, living in 2020. I'm going to go to questions now from the audience. Um, this is a question from Tim, uh, who says, how has your relationship changed, if at all, with the friends in the book? Um, whose careers have not necessarily matched yours. I'm not sure that we need to dwell so much on the career bit, but how has your relationship changed, I think, um, with, with, with friends who may feel that they, are, that they are represented in some way in the book? People may find this quite hard to believe, but um, I speak plain truth. My relationship with those friends has deepened and continued much as it was when we were 15. You know, their lives, uh, to address that part of the question, um, have not been a disappointment or lagged behind mine in any way. In fact, they have, each of them in their own way and with their own distinct thing in mind, have achieved what they wanted to achieve. It's certainly, um, each of them have families, homes, work that they value, they're readers, they love their music still, they have nights together uh, based around their love of music and they go to gigs together. They've got full lives and their children have the benefit of their comedy and their experience and their values. It was always about values from the very beginning. I mean, my experience of Thatcherism uh, may have been different from yours, Damien. I'm not sure, we've never really discussed it, but there is a way in which what it taught us was in contradistinction to Thatcher's government, how to cleave, to, how to cleave and how to join together and find yeah. a solidarity based on a set of opposing values. Those boys and those girls still have those values and an answer, direct answer to the question. Uh, they mean as much to me now as they did when I was 16, 17, 18, even more in fact, and I still see them uh, with great pleasure. I think that sense of connectedness and collectivism joining together um, is, is the thing that, that, that Thatcher couldn't change. And in fact, the, the great, I think the great, uh, error in that policy is to think that indiv individuals will never connect with ind other individuals and only connect, I think, is part of the, the thrust of, of, of this. Well, she, gave us a, and, and she gave us a lifelong bulwark to fight against, to bounce mm. against. In that sense, I'm quite grateful to her. I never thought I'd ever use that word in relation to <laughs> uh, M. Thatcher, but um, she did, in fact, give us um, something to sharpen our tools against that we couldn't, you know, allow to go unchallenged for a whole lifetime, that notion that there was no such thing as society. When Thatcher said that, we then had our purpose. We then yeah. had our slogan for life. And, um, you know, so in that sense, she did us a favor. Um, I'm gonna have to move on very quickly. Next question from Andrew. Music and bands underpin the book. To what extent have they helped define and shape your life? Of course, you were in a band with your with your with your pal Keith. But just talk a wee bit about how music informs Mayflies. Well, when I was a kid, you know, you could 
develop an extreme dislike for a person that you didn't know just based on the fact that they liked the wrong band. I mean, it could be the most beautiful person in your class, male or female, that you were fascinated with in every single way, except, unfortunately, they liked the Thompson Twins. And there's no <laughs> way past that. I mean, there's nowhere to go with that. Or Kajagugu, oh my God, you're done. You have to immediately step back and you feel all your admiration and love for them just drain away. And that <laughs> is a definition, from my point of view, of the fickleness of youth, but also of the power of music if you live in a community like that, where you, it, your definition of who you are is based on the fact that you and these five or six or 12 guys all went to the first Jesus and Mary Chain concert ever in Glasgow together. And that's what, you, that's what binds you. And people who don't like the Jesus and Mary Chain or think it's all noise or the fact that they played for 15 minutes with their backs turned to the audience and it was all feedback is obnoxious. Those people don't count to you. They have revealed <laughs> themselves to be a lower form. You know, it's all ridiculous. And of course, it doesn't express any political or liberal values that are true. It's just teenage prejudice. And I'm afraid if you love music as much as we loved, it was just a high form of prejudice. <laughs> you know, the band that you were in together, you did actually, what was it called? Was it Big Gun? The Big Gun, well remembered. The Big Gun. Um, you released a single. Yeah. And that's, that single... Was, what was it called? It was called Heard About Love. The big gun, I should tell you, was uh, the, the name uh, was found by Keith Martin. It's, it's the name of the factory in Saturday night and Sunday morning, Alan Silito's novel, uh, that uh, somebody works in, not, not Arthur Seaton, he works in a bicycle factory, I think, but there's a big, the big gun factory is in the town and that's where we got the name for it. And we were fantastically ordinary. And... <laughs> Um, but we did have one single and, um, you know, I can't claim uh, much credit for anything to do with this band. I just shook a tambourine and tried to look that I wasn't making a mistake. Um, but we had a lovely time and we were all really young and we played, uh, you know, quite a number of gigs together. And then there was this great moment where this single that we put out, Andy Crone, who was the bass player in the band, who was a kind of the most organised of us all, I think he managed to get this recording together. He might even have paid for it, or everybody did. I certainly didn't. I was at school in Skint. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we got this single out, put it out ourselves, and then sent it to John Peel's producer. And then one night, which will be burned in our minds, all of us, forever, Imagine the scene, gathered round one of those ugly silver stack with a smoky glass lid, uh, stereo things, um, listening to John Peel as our single suddenly comes on. And then he says, and I remember verbatim, uh, Melody arrives all unheralded into the programme. That's the big gun from Irvin. I must say, I like that immoderately, he said. Immoderately. We're looking at each other, punching the air, screaming. I mean, that's the sheer unbridled joy of youth. And we had that experience. And I'm able to tell you it went straight into the novel, you know, unedited. It's an absolutely, it's an absolutely fantastic, fantastic moment. Um, so you were playing the tambourine. Does that mean that you just, can you not sing? Well, you know, you can present me with a list of my deficiencies in the musical department, um, and they'll all be true. <laughs> but um, I just have to say that before Bez was Bez, before the Happy mm. Mondays even existed, I was shaking a tambourine on stage and slightly off my face. 
but being off your face in those days meant that you drank two pints of snakebite and blackcurrant in a row. Um, so, uh, well, we had a great time, and it was kind of totemic youth stuff. Um, but we took it really seriously at the time and loved it. Um, she did. Tully Dawson, uh, in, the, in the book, goes on through the years, through the decades, still in bands, as many of my pals that I grew up with, grew up with still are, um, including Keith Martin, right up to when he died. He was playing, at that point, drums in a band. Music's been so important. And again, that's one of the things I felt we didn't quite have in the culture, was enough books where music was at the center of the, the group's life, that this mm-hmm. gang could so define their sense of whether people were okay or not in terms of mm. which bands they like? See, I, I, I definitely had a, I mean, the music that I liked when I was at school um, would not have been the music that you would have, have liked, even if we'd been at school at the same time, I'm quite sure of it. But So I had to go and listen to some of the music when I was reading the book to get Damien, a sense of Damien, who the a, bands were. Damien, Thompson stuff. Twins fan, is that what you're trying to tell me here? Obviously, I'm a Madonna fan. Seriously, Andrew, (laughs) come on. Um, There's a scene in the novel where they're in Manchester and um, uh, Tully sees the Smiths getting into a Rolls Royce outside the hotel. Is that another one of the scenes? And he throws himself across the bonnet of the car. Is that another one of the scenes that's kind of gone in straight from life? Actually, there was this moment where we saw the... uh, the Smiths, and there was a car, but I embroidered the fact of him throwing himself onto the bonnet because I wanted it to be an even bigger, more operatic demonstration of that strange thing of both loving a band and wanting to humiliate them at the same time. (laughs) You know, that's a thing probably unknown in the internet age that fandom has changed so much. I mean, everybody's the star of their own life now and they produce and direct and star in it on social media. But in those days, to see a famous person in the flesh was quite kind of otherworldly. So mm. the idea of uh, the very famous at that time about to play GMEX the next day, that's why we're in Manchester. Uh, and in the book, um, uh, that kernel of them coming out of the Britannia Hotel, that was true. And the fact of our Rolls Royce being there was also true. But I just wanted to build this into some absolute comedy of uh, the leading character, Tully Dawson, sort of both loving them and wanting to shout abuse at them at the same time and somehow ending up spread over the co- cover and the, the, the bonnet of the car with the windscreen wipers sort of trying to wipe him off. So yeah, that was a combination of both, the, the autobiographical and the invented. I, I really loved that scene. Um, tell me about though in real life, when, um, when, Peel, when Peel played you, you were then covered in Smash Hits magazine, what happened there? Oh yeah, that was, uh, that was both a, a glorious moment and a slightly depressing one. And uh, we were runner up to Michael Jackson as single of the fortnight in Smash Hits. So that was hurrah. <laughs> but then when you read the review, it said, this is the sort of band that made England great. So I quickly removed to my little toy typewriter, dear Smash Hits, we are from Scotland, so fuck you, or something. Amy, <laughs> like that. Um, I wasn't having that in Smash Hits. So, uh, but of course, lots of laughter and, uh, you know, everybody saw the funny side. But um, years later, I should tell you, um, in their wisdom, the British Council decided um, in the early noughties that uh, they would send, to represent British culture, they would send John Peel and me to New Zealand. I know. not heard this. So John and I had this fantastic couple of weeks and it was only about, I think, three months before he died. Um, and we, I was able to just 
pouring my heart out to him over dinner every night about the favour he'd done us by playing our single when we were teenagers in Irvine. And he was just in the flesh and in life, every bit as wonderful, immoderate, friendly and sublime as what you would hope. And uh, it was just great to spend those days with him. And he used to leave messages um, when he went on with the tour on which he eventually died, he left a couple of messages on my machine, which I saved because I loved him so much. John Peel's unmistakable voice, leaving a message saying, where are you? You haven't called me. I hope that wasn't some sort of cheap holiday romance we had, he said. <laughs> that must have taken you right back to being that age again. You must have, that, that just connects you straight to that moment in your life, doesn't it? I have to tell you something honestly, and it's right at the core of this book for me, which is that I'm always back there. Everything takes me back there. You know, we live with the cliche that, you know, the past is another country. They do things differently there. The past is never the past. The present is overloaded and endlessly, um, you know, scaled up and made interesting and made profound by the past, as well as the promise of the future. I think that's how we live. It's a slightly philosophical point maybe to some, but for me, it's always felt straightforward. There is no past. There's only the ongoing delight and sublime business of things having happened and great conjunctions and great meetings having ha happened, which feed your work in every way, sometimes explicitly in a novel like this, where you're able to take the past and its place in the present and try and make a, you know, uh, a connective tissue for other people try and create something in their lives where they recognize it as being true for them in a whole different set of circumstances with a different cast of individuals. And that's what I wanted to do with this novel, to show that the past is there, right in front of you, in your language and on your tongue and in your mind and in the song constantly. This book, I think, will be the key that opens the past for so many people. It's very individual, it's very specific, the story, the place, the world, the time, those friendships. Um, but I think that everybody who reads Mayflies is going to feel, as I did, um, like you've written the book just for them. It really is incredible. So I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to every single one. You can get your hands on a copy of Mayflies in our independent online bookshop, which is shop.edbookfest.co.uk. And I know that many of you are going to be at the Meet the, event, Meet the Author event afterwards. Thanks everybody for being here this evening with me, Damien Barr, in conversation with the incredible Andrew O'Hagan. Thank it's you, Damien. Pleasure. Fantastic. Absolute pleasure. A pleasure. Your world premiere. <laughs> Indeed. Lovely. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been my pleasure to interview Andrew and also to talk to Douglas Stewart and Garth Greenwell during the festival. Um, and all those interviews are available now to watch online for free. Enjoy the rest of the fest and your summer. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.